with Internet. It's the Harvest of Colin Atrophy, and I'm very happy to welcome you to episode number 33 of Life Harvester Radio. Quick announcement up top. I got a Patreon. You can use it to subscribe to my newsletter. The paper version, you get them in the mail every month if you don't want to go find them for free in a store or just get the emails. You can also get mixtapes. There's other stuff. You uh, check it out. I'll put a link in the episode description. Um, on to the guest, Maddie Court. A.K.A. Xena Warrior Princess, uh, my favorite meme account, turned to my favorite advice columnist. Um, Maddie does the um, memes on Instagram, and then, what am I, 90 does the memes on Instagram? Well, fucking whatever. Um, and then segued into writing some of my favorite zines that I've read in the past few years. Uh, the Ex-Girlfriend of My Ex-Girlfriend is My Wife trilogy, or The Ex-Girlfriend of My Ex-Girlfriend is My Girlfriend is the first one. Anyway, Maddie's great. The zines are great. She's a very talented writer, um, and uh, you could tell her advice is good just from our conversation because she's such a good listener. She's very compassionate. She's like very engaged and interested, and um, I was a little bit spacey because I was preparing to have a very scary conversation later that day, um, not with Maddie, and um, it went great, and I think that was in large part due to the fact that I spent the afternoon hanging out with a literal advice columnist, so if you got something going on that you might be scared of... Um, Try to hang out with an advice columnist beforehand. It's it's really calming. Anyway, um, that's it. On to the episode. Enjoy. Yeah, I think when I, I lived in West Philly um, for three years and was going to a lot of shows and felt really inspired to like make zines and stuff like that. But I always felt really intimidated uh-huh. by kind of everybody because I felt, especially in a place like West Philly that's so small, it's so easy to have like a cult of personality yeah. around yourself. Um, and I think at the time I felt more socially anxious mm-hmm. in my early 20s than I do yeah. now. So I would like really like have to psych myself out to go to shows and go to art openings and I would go and I would feel like no one would talk to me. Not necessarily in a way where um, I was being dismissed. Right. I think a lot of times when people seem like clicky or they seem exclusive, they're actually just like they don't know how to talk to new people. Yeah. Right? And they're feeling the same things that you are. Yeah, Yeah. 100%. I was talking about this with a friend of mine in Pittsburgh where like I, I moved there and I think because of my background in punk or whatever I have like some some shared history with some of the people there but like a lot of the people in Pittsburgh have either grown up there or lived there for yeah. the past 12 or 13 years right. so it's like of course there's inside jokes of course there's like these social units that exist um, and like they're not um, they're not uh, like the boundary is porous like a new person can join that mm-hmm. but it's not um, it might seem scary if you were just a stranger you know to be like yeah. to walk in and see all this shared like witness all this shared history absolutely yeah that was very much how I felt kind of like being a must but I also felt really inspired and like excited yeah I worked it I don't know if you've been there the green line on Locust Street oh yeah my friends lived for many years in a house like four doors down from the there. blue house that was with yeah, like na- Perry. Nacho house it's called Nacho yeah, Perry, house. yeah which John I, don't, I don't think 
But it was like once I had that barista job, because I had originally worked at the Green Line off of Clark Park, which uh-huh. is a little more uptight, a little fancier. Yeah. And then I kind of just transferred myself over to that coffee shop because it was a lot more fun. But then it was like once I had like just like a structure to talk to people, then I started making friends. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's wild how much, maybe we're similar in this way, but like give me like a counter to stand behind. Like yeah. when I would go to punk or like anarchist events, I always wanted to be that we're in a yeah. show. I always wanted to table. Cause Absolutely. it's like, if I have the table and I'm like handing out pamphlets or whatever, I can, I can spread out within the confines. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I, but give me just like wide open space and I'm just like, just standing against the wall. Cause I'm like, where's the, where's the boundary? Absolutely. Yeah. Or like you just end up on your phone yeah. the whole time because you don't know where else to be. Um, yeah. I love, love to table, love to be behind mm-hmm. a counter. And then hopefully you can see people who are like also anxious and don't know what to do in this space and like yeah. talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. So where are you from? You're from Wisconsin? I'm from, yeah. Right? I'm from Northeastern Wisconsin. Okay. I'm from Appleton. Appleton? What's it like there? I would describe it as a small city. It's a lot of strip malls. Okay. It's, um, the birthplace of Harry Houdini, but he wasn't actually born there. He was actually born in Hungary, but because he was a Jew in show business, he made up this like story about himself. Whoa. Yeah, in reality, I think he only lived there for a few years as a boy. Uh-huh. And his, his dad was a rabbi, but like a really bad rabbi. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's where I'm from. Um, I was actually a docent at the Houdini Museum in high school. Are you gonna go see his grave while you're here? Oh, I didn't actually know. He's, I think I knew that, but I wasn't. He's buried in Cypress Hill Cemetery in Ridgewood, um, and it's the the grave is like it's like a zone, kind of like as uh-huh. big as this table. Like, and there's like a space with two benches on either side. There's like a hole, and then his giant grave stone, and it's like it was built out to have people hang out at it. Wow. Okay, I'm gonna go to that. And it's like a really chill date spot if you want to take someone on a date biking out to the or you can walk there from the m train for to the um houdini's grave is like a very sick uh (laughs) yeah like check out my deep knowledge of new york city kind of yeah move it's so weird that you say that because i was in montreal in like 2014 and i was just walking around um with some friends who i just met like i think that they were people um they were just like random friends of friends who were like nice and showing me around. And one of these girls, she pointed to a theater and was like, that's where Harry Houdini died. Cause he got, <laughs> he got punched really hard. Okay. Like he, one of his tricks was that he would just go up to people and be like, punch me and I can like withstand it. But he would have to like prepare and like brace his stomach. Yeah. And some guy was like, oh, okay. And just like punched him when he wasn't ready. So he, um, I think he got like, he was like ripped open inside and then there was like an infection. And because it was like early 1900s medicine, they were like, well. Bye. But I was like, that's wild that you just pointed that out to me because yeah. I'm from Appleton where Houdini told everyone that he was born. Yeah, whoa. Yeah. Um, so you were a docent at the Houdini Museum in high school? I was, yeah. And I learned a lot about like magicians. Yeah because that's generally the people the people who visit it are like little kids and like 4-H groups and then like magic people what are magic people like magic people are either magicians themselves or they have like a love of like the history of magic tricks i feel like the second one is better but i could be wrong 
to to be like I admire this craft, but I'm not interested in participating. <laughs> I've just never met. I I don't know if I've known real magicians, but I think. Um, I think the Venn diagram of like, um, and this might be like a little bit of a spicy take, but the Venn diagram of men I know who do um, <laughs> card tricks or juggle and men I know who turned mm. out to be a sexual predator is like almost a circle. Yeah. It feels like a phase that you should go through in like the seventh grade, which I don't right. say about many things. That's different. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Like I want people to play in their bands. I want people to like keep writing poetry. I want people to stop doing magic at a yeah. certain point. Yeah, a teen is different than an adult that's into magic. Yeah. I think it's a good, like, yeah, because I think the idea of like creating illusions or like tricking people <laughs> yeah. as like a part of the like adolescent exploratory moment of like what is my agency in the world and what kind of power mm -hmm. can I enact in the world is like, I think that's pretty chill. But if you're like in a dorm doing <laughs> card tricks, I feel like you're a pickup artist. It does border with like prank culture. See, this is weird because I'm a Dennis the Menace. Okay. And I kind of love pranks. Okay, but I feel like if you go to like a magic shop, yeah, um, which there is a famous magic shop in Appleton, like a lot of that stuff is like fake barf. Or like, or like that gum that snaps on your finger. Oh, I don't know that. Oh, it's a pack of gum that has like winter fresh. They don't make gum that looks like this anymore, you know, uh -huh. with the long sticks. Uh-huh. And it's the pack with one stick left. And when you pull it out, like a light mouse trap snaps on your oh. finger. And there's, I used to have, I had one. That's why I know about it. Mm -hmm. I had a lighter that shot water that I would always trick my grandma with. Oh, wow. And um, cigarette loads you could buy, which were like a thing that you stuff into a cigarette and then it explodes. Okay. Or like just kind of like a box with a snake in it. Oh yeah, the nuts, the mixed nuts with the snake mm. that pops out. That's that's classic. That's a classic trick. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that I like pranks, but I hate magic. Yeah, there's a gray line between. Yeah, pranking. I think it's something to explore. Well, I think anytime you're like, like it's different to go up to like your grandma and do something. Right. Or like put a whoopee cushion in like class. It's weird to like go up to a stranger on the street and like want to fuck with them. Yeah. Yeah, I had this idea that there's these people in Times Square that are like super annoying that are like kind of hawkers for the comedy clubs that walk yeah. around saying, hey, do you like comedy? <laughs> and I had this idea with a friend of mine like maybe 10, 15 years ago where we were like, I, I was gonna walk around and when people, and someone else was gonna be taping from kind of farther away and then when people asked, hey, do you like comedy? He was gonna be dressed up like a clown and pop out and hit them with a pie. Uh -huh. And we thought like we talked about it in a bar a lot. We were like, "This is a very funny idea." Yeah. And I still think conceptually, it's funny for someone to say, "Hey, do you like comedy?" and then have a <laughs> yeah. clown pop up and hit them with a pie. Absolutely. But as we started like figuring out the mechanics of it in real life, like where do we store the pie? How do you be dressed like a clown and we don't? Right. No one notices. That stuff's all solvable very easily. But we got to this point where we were like, "Do we want to hit someone that's at work with a pie?" Yeah. Like, is the return good enough for like whatever YouTube video we're gonna make? Or it was before YouTube, but you know what I mean? Like whatever. And the, and ultimately we were like, no, we don't want to go where someone is at work and hit them with a pie because that sucks. Especially in the summertime when it's just oh. like melting on you. Yeah, I often, you know, you don't think about getting hit with a pie and then you're at like a county fair and you're like, this is, this is like a steadfast genre of humor for a lot of people. Yeah, I think, 
I think part of the like era of activism that I grew up in, I think about getting hit with a pie a lot because okay. that was like when I was like 17, throwing pies at politicians was like a big international oh. phenomenon okay. among like a kind of ad busters demographic where it was like, we're culture jamming, we're like trying to fight corporations and we're going to hit George Bush with, with a, a pie. pie because we're like, um, we're whimsical as well as... Right. Uh, Revolution oriented, um, but how do you? What's the? What's what stands in between Appleton and Philly? Like you're growing up in Appleton. What's your childhood like? What are you doing? When I was a kid, um, I had a pretty intense speech impediment, That's so shit. I was always getting pulled out of class um, to do that. Um, and then I skipped third grade, and I just went into fourth grade. Whoa. So everyone was like super mean to me in fourth grade because I didn't know how to do cursive. It's like a very big, <laughs> felt the shame. The, the, I started to laugh. <laughs> no, the, yeah. The arbitrariness of that is so. Cursive is like powerful. Yeah. And the kids who like learn cursive early, those were like, especially the girls. It was like if you're a girl who can do cursive in like second grade before they teach it to you in like um, third grade, that's powerful. And then I'm sure like two years later they like stopped teaching kids at all and. Um, my current handwriting is just like awful and it's never been a problem. Yeah, mine's disgusting. Yeah, so I think I just, I read a lot um, and then I had like one really like best friend who lived like kitty corner behind me and we would like, um, we were like obsessed with toads. We had a really impressive toad set up at her house because my parents wouldn't let it nice. be at our house. Yeah, and we were really- What kind of toads? <laughs> Where'd they come from? Okay, they were from just like a pet store. Were they neon? I want to say they were fire belly toads. Dude, there was this unethical pet store near my parents' house uh -huh. that would just sell children those toads yeah. without their parents. So I would just ride my bike there and kept buying toads. Yeah. And so, yeah, we just had like fire when I was a little toads? kid. Yeah, they were like orange on the bottom and like kind of ga yellow Gatorade colored yeah. on top. Yeah. And then their aquarium, we like hot glued or like whatever um had like plexiglass so half of it was like guppies cool that they could go into and then half of it was like a toad environment nice with like a light but yeah we just went to like a pet smart yeah um, which always like freaks me out as an adult yeah that like just kids can go by like a turtle like a living thing like a turtle yeah or people just like give kids rabbits and a rabbit is a terrible pet it needs so much work yeah and then it just ends up at like a shelter yeah, it's awful. Because no one wants them. Right. Yeah. I really think, like, cats and dogs. Also, like, just wait till they're 12 or so. Like, you know what I mean? You mm -hmm. shouldn't sell... No one should be selling a seven-year-old a living thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They don't understand. I even, like... I had so many hamsters, and I feel badly about this, but they're nocturnal, and I was always, like, waking them up to, like, play with me. Yeah, of I, like, course. Didn't you don't understand. know. Yeah, and then my, like, dogs would eat them because they would get out. Yeah, what are you gonna, it's, this is yeah. not your fault as a child. Yeah, it was a little bit my fault, but. but I feel I like know. kids, yeah, sure, it's your fault a little, but I feel like kids don't necessarily understand the repercussions of some of the, you know what I mean? No, yeah, not at all. Um, but yeah, I loved dogs, was like one of my, my big obsessions. I was not really much of a horse girl, but I was definitely, definitely a dog girl. Yeah, I love a dog. Oh yeah, I love your dog. I'm such yeah. a fan. Yeah, Gus. Gus. He's perfect. He is, and he's a rescue. Yeah, Becca got him from a high kill shelter in Lodi, California, okay. like maybe three years before we started dating, and um, 
Yeah, he was found wandering a vineyard. Oh, which is so great because he's like got this very Dionysian body. Uh You know? Yeah, I can't imagine him like on the mean streets. No. Yeah. Um, and he just looks like um, (laughs) kind of debaucherous. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, no, he's perfect. And he, uh, yeah, she had been to like a bunch of different like Bassett specific rescues in the Bay Area and they were all like, she lived in an apartment across from a dog park, like literally across the street from a dog park. And they were like, well, it's going to cost you an extra $10,000 to adopt this dog since you don't have a backyard. Oh, they're wild. What the fuck? Yeah. And they come over to your house and like inspect it. Yeah. And she was like, I'm literally, I have, I'm across the street from a dog park. I work as a server in like a fine dining restaurant. So I only work like three days a week and I make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. I'm the ideal dog owner. I'm always home. And they're like, well, that's not what we think. Yeah. They were like, yeah. And, but then she just started driving out of town and going to all the high kill shelters where they like farm these bassets mm-hmm. from, you know, and she just, and then she found Gus. They fell in love immediately. Oh yeah. He is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you're a dog girl, not a horse, oh, blah, 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 horse girl. Um, and you read a lot and you collect toads. Mm-hmm. This is like middle school we're talking? This is probably still elementary school, elementary school. which went up to like Te- sixth, sixth grade, grade in, in Appleton. Nine. Yeah. Nice. Um, when did you start writing? Because you're a really good writer. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I think it was something that I always got a lot of positive feedback for. Mm-hmm. And then in middle school, I think I just decided that I was like bad at math. Yeah. Which caused a lot of stress with my teachers. So to counter that, I was like, well, I'll just be like really good at writing at writing. And then in high school, I was really into the newspaper and I was definitely like the only one who like cared as much about it as I did. I like built a whole persona around being editor in chief of my high school newspaper. That's tight. Yeah. And I would drink um, because I like had this important job my senior year. I would like drink white chocolate mochas from Starbucks. What's the core? I don't see the correlation. I was like, I need a powerful drink, and I need to start <laughs> drinking coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because also, like, that's kind of an age, like high school, where like some kids are drinking coffee, a lot of kids don't have money, which I actually will say is a big difference when I talk to my friends who are from New York, especially versus like my upbringing. Is like I never had like money mm-hmm. or like a credit card or any kind of really like unsupervised time because like even to go anywhere like my parents would have to drop me off right to go see a movie whereas i feel like if you grow up in new york you have more like space to yeah get into shenanigans yeah i mean i'm even from the suburbs and like the buses there were good enough that until i knew how to drive i could Mm -hmm. get to all my weird friends houses to do drugs when i was young right yeah and i think if you want to and i'm sure like kids do in appleton wisconsin but it just felt mm-hmm. like I didn't have as much freedom in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was really into the newspaper. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. I think I tried to write some stories in high school, but I would feel really discouraged. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, you moved away for college? Yeah, I went to college in Philadelphia. That's, where, that's why you moved to Philly? Yeah. Okay. Well, I w- so I went to Bryn Mawr, which is on the main line. Yeah. So people from Philadelphia would be angry if I said that I went to college um, there. But basically, Bryn Mawr was like an incredible 
experience. Is that one of the seven sisters? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's a women's college. Yeah, I was trying. Me and Becca were trying to remember all of them on our, our road trip last month, and we could not do it. Yeah, but cool. Yeah, um, well, some of them don't exist anymore. Yeah, and like Vassar is um, co-ed now. Yeah. So, and then I think when I was at Bryn Mawr, um, I was still interested in journalism and kind of like trying to write about music uh -huh. for some local publications, but I did some unpaid journalism internships in Philly and really just disliked those experiences. Like for like local weeklies or whatever? What yeah. Kind of, yeah. Well, I, well, I interned at Celebrity, which was like a news and information blog. About local Philly shit about local Philly shit okay. yeah so it was like great because I got to go to a lot of events and like learn about the city yeah but I hated blogging as like a as like a job yeah yeah and um yeah and then I just after college I really didn't know what I wanted to do I like moved to Portland and was working at like a group home for disabled adults Portland Maine or Portland Oregon Portland Oregon mm. And then I think because that job was so stressful, I started journaling because yeah. it was kind of the only way that I could like get through those shifts where it was like often encountering situations that I wasn't trained to deal for. And that's like not my skill set. Like, yeah, for sure. At all, you know, healthcare or like um, helping people in like their homes is, is not something I'm great at. And um, yeah, and then now that I'm like talking about it, I'm realizing there's like such a gap between like wanting to be a writer and then like quote unquote being a writer. Yeah, I mean, I had a very similar experience. Yeah, so I was just like writing these journals and then I went to grad school for um, feminist studies. Because okay. I thought that I wanted to be an academic. Okay, where'd you do that? UW-Madison. That's when you ended up in Madison. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How was that? Do you feel like that, were you, when did you, so you're, I know you because of memes. Yes. Right? Um, was that, um, although I'm, I think your memes are fantastic, I'm far more interested in the like, the sort of the pathway from memes to being a writer, to, or like from being a writer yeah. to memes back to being a writer. But were you doing, it makes sense that, did you finish the, Masters, the women's studies masters. I did. It kind of makes sense that you have a women's studies degree. When I think about some of the memes that you <laughs> thank you, that's yeah. that's a compliment. Yeah, definitely, I meant it that way as a compliment. Yeah, I think I felt really lonely in grad school. Yeah, because I'd moved from West Philly, where I felt I like lived with my friends, and I had spent a lot of like my own energy into like making a community there. Yeah, and then I was just in Madison, which is very much a town that people move to go to school. Yeah, yeah, it's a real college town kind of transient zone yeah and there's not a lot of queer people really mm -mm. there are a lot of kind of like older married queer people and then there are a lot of undergraduates who are like uh. so they like i would go on tinder and they would be like five women jesus to date and they would kind of be like profiles that didn't look real um so i just felt like i was just like in this like cornfield yeah that sucks yeah and i didn't have a car and I was like, I truly have like nothing to do with my time. So I think I became more invested in social media. Yeah. Because um, I had been really into Tumblr in college, then like deleted it. And then when I moved back to Madison, I like got a Tumblr again. And that was when I started making memes as well on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've had a convoluted relationship with the internet, I think yeah. from being from like the subset of punk I come from being kind of anti-technology in certain ways for a long time. And but like, 
I, you know, I started doing zines in mm-hmm. eighth grade. Yeah. And then, and I made like a lot of friends through zines, but the pe- most of the people that I th- refer to as my zine friends from that era are actually people I met on LiveJournal. Oh, yeah. On like groups that were situated around zines or on this uh, zinesters at yahoogroups.com oh, wow. oh. Uh, email list serve where like my friend Mimi, uh, who has been like kind of a mentor to me for my whole life, mm-hmm. basically, is she teaches. Um, oh, Mimi Taiwan? Uh, yeah. Yeah. She teaches at uh, Champaign Urbana, the University of Illinois. Um, but she's like. I met her on the Zinesters Yahoo group when I was 14 or something. Wow. You know, we became pen pals. We've only actually hung out in person twice, maybe, in the 22 years that we've known each other. But it's like, um, I think the way the internet can facilitate, and I think for people just slightly younger than me, where the there's less, it was more pervasive at a younger age, so there's less of a hang up about it, like admitting that the internet is a real space right. for real, like. Um, generative social interaction that feels like kind of I mean it can feel terrible but also can feel like really good and affirming Um, I think it's cool I think that rules that you were super into Tumblr is what I'm trying to say yeah Tumblr was like a little past my time it felt very real especially when I was living in Portland yeah like I would be on the bus and I would see like this person with blue hair who wears prom dresses from the 1950s and that would be like a Tumblr celeb and that sighting would mean like so much to me. Yeah, hell yeah. You know, I would just be like, this is a sign that like, I should be like in this city right now. When like, then of course it's like not. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, super interesting. And now it just doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, Tumblr, that seems like, to be, they took away all the like, wasn't there a big scandal where they removed a bunch of like anything with tits Yeah, showing? like nudie, so any, um, anything that could be like categorized as porn. But then, of course, they didn't like the algorithm is bad, so it just right. deleted a lot of like queer content. And um, I don't really know a lot about that situation, but I think it was like connected to the like FOSTA SESTA sex trafficking. Oh yeah, that makes sense. It happened yeah. at the same time they took Craigslist down. They like took all our friends' bank accounts away. Yeah, um, and like we're patrolling like Venmo and stuff. Yeah, yeah, so just making up. it really hard. Yeah, um, fuck the government. Yeah, obviously. Um, so you're in Madison, you're isolated, you're getting into social media. Uh-huh. Is this when you start memeing? Yes. Cool. Just like in my bed. Yeah. Probably on like a Saturday night. Yeah. I mean, by the time I found your account, like someone had showed it to me, I was like, Colin, this is up your alley. <laughs> I was, you had like, you know, in the tens of thousands at least of followers or whatever on Instagram. Like it was like, this. it had blown up, I'm sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't like... You were a friend of a friend who had 5,000 people following you or whatever. There was like a K after the number. Um, what What was, I mean, that was probably gradual, right? Or was there like one meme that you made that took off and then you got a million? I'm I, so fascinated by that stuff. Yeah, I think it was the possum meme that I made about like, feeling like you've just been queer for so long and then you meet someone who's like newly queer and they're so excited and they have all this faith and like you do this like utopic vision and oh, you're yeah. just like actually people still suck yeah 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 when you're queer yeah they're terrible they're terrible the same problems yeah you know i think that meme 
but yeah I feel really grateful because I felt like I felt so alone but I was able to kind of like radiate something out there that brought a lot of really amazing people to me yeah like I think the people like you you know who had resonated with are like so wonderful and they're for the most part like people I would probably be friends with yeah for in sure real life that makes sense yeah yeah it's totally just like um, I don't know I think it's pretty amazing to see okay. the way that like uh, that kind of impact can ripple and like it's just like I, I've read interviews with you where you talk about like the kind of how you make memes so I'll just probably link one of those I don't think mm -hmm. we need to talk about that because that's sort of well trod but um, I think as someone who did you did it when you were doing it super regularly, did it feel like a like a really um, like fulfilling creative outlet? Like, were you super stoked when you were like, "I got a meme idea," you know? Yeah, because I don't actually post that much, right? Especially compared to a lot of the newer meme accounts. Like, if I can do like one good meme a week, yeah. I'm like happy. Yeah, hell yeah. Right, but I'm always like thinking of them, but. The really tricky part for me is like finding an image that matches the energy. The, yeah. Because it can be like funny, but the image isn't there. And I try not to use like pictures of people. Right. Because I'm conscious of like how big the account is. And I don't want to just use like clip art of a real person. And I don't want to like say anything about like what a lesbian body looks like. Yeah, for sure. Right. So I wouldn't want to use like a picture of a celebrity or like a thin white woman. It's something I'm conscious of. Um, so I do, before I post, I do try to like think about something from like every angle to yeah. make sure it's not transphobic, to make sure it's not saying something I wouldn't want it to say. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's yeah. really, it's something that there's like a way that your memes can feel like, um, like, I don't know, like they don't, it's not like, um, it's not like cutesy poo tender queer bullshit, but like, <laughs> yeah it doesn't they don't feel malicious and they don't feel like um performatively sad sack either you know what oh, i mean like you. it hits kind of a nice balance where it's like yes i'm being vulnerable about some shit but also like maybe not in a way that it that feels like um becca um and i talked a lot about about what tinder was like in the cities that we lived in before mm. we started dating and there was um there was this like dashboard confessional looking guy that she had matched with and then that was how she discovered the like tinder stories where you could post things on oh, tinder wow. it's like a thing where you post things on tinder and everyone you've matched with sees them i don't think i knew about this feature. and he posted okay. this one that was like a from above kind of like um make out club selfie and of his like little bouffant and it said um it said should i move to bk NY or KMS and she was like spent like a day being like what city is KMS yeah, what's, I don't know what city until she realized that it stands for kill myself <gasps> and it was like <laughs> and, it, and she was just like who is this dude? like yeah why I was are like, you sending that's an airport code in the right. Netherlands yeah, yeah 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 and it's like why are you and I feel like that's um yeah that's like a a vein of meme which is like the like I am, I am so sad mm -hmm. at that, like, but is it a joke? How dark am I going to get? I, I don't know. I just feel like 
you kind of yeah. walk a line where like there is vulnerability. You do talk about um, like kind of relatable moments of sadness or awkwardness or whatever, but you do it without it ever feeling like um, you're just like a goth teen pretend. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I try not to write about something like as it's happening to me. This, yeah. Which I think is like also fair to the people that I date. Because I don't sure. want to like put someone on blast. Um, but yeah, I think because I was like so into Tumblr and my Tumblr was so confessional, that kind of writing just like doesn't feel good anymore. Yeah. So I like to feel like I'm in control over like the story of myself that I'm putting out there. Um, the other thing too is that like I have such like wonderful followers who care so much I do sometimes feel self-conscious by like an outpouring of like a response like my dog actually died last month oh geez and he like kept he like had a little bit of a um, following sure he had really good paws people would be like we love Kip's, Kip's paws um, but I was like I just don't want to post about this because people are gonna like send me so much and then I feel Badly not saying like thank you so much. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like acknowledging everyone. Right. Because it feels like I do often receive messages that I just cannot reply to. Sure. And that does does feel shitty in some ways. But yeah, basically just like learning how to have boundaries with it and. Yeah, boundaries are hard. Yeah, and to not feel like um, badly if I go like three weeks without saying anything. Yeah, but, I feel really lucky that um, that like the era of content pre-social media contacting strangers that I came up in it was like if you bought a zine sometimes it took six months to actually show up yeah uh, that like I don't feel any kind of way about I have like a few emails that I have starred in my inbox where I'm like I have to get to these I'll just like include right. a little apology for how long it takes but like I feel no kind of way about a stranger being owed my time um, good and I feel super grateful for that it takes a while to kind of get to that point because you want to feel grateful that like you have readers and sure. that people are invested but I can't like personally like carry on conversations with people especially if like the conversation is that they read something that I wrote and they completely misunderstood it oh yeah it's like not my job to be like oh actually like this this and this and I didn't mean this yeah or just yeah. like you don't have that you don't need to spend your time doing that yeah um, but um, this seems like a good segue into how did you make the like the transition from I do this meme account to now I have this advice zine oh. was so it seemed so smooth to me and it feels so smooth even now thinking back on the moments before your first zine came out that I can't even remember how it happened how it happened yeah can you walk me through what that like uh... okay so how it happened was that I was like completely broke and mm -hmm. I really needed a way to like get some Venmos um, and at the time I was getting like a lot of questions just like random advice questions just because of the like emotional content of your memes I think so or yeah. people were like maybe this person seems like she knows a lot about queer identity I think people are really looking for answers that they can't just like Google people really want to be like am I gay you know and yeah. those were like a lot of the questions that I would get and um, I would I'm a Sagittarius so I would often reply to them but sometimes I would show these questions to like my friends and I would notice that they would get really invested in the question and like bring in their own life experiences it was my first realization that people really love advice content yeah people love like the Q&A oh yeah format um, so I was just kind of like sporadically answering these questions as they would come in and then when I was like just thinking of a way 
to like make some some quick cash I was like oh I'll just like open up submissions and I'll just like answer what people throw at me as best as I can and I think I yeah I think I wrote that first zine in a week it's wildly good thank you like I've written about these zines thank you so much in the um, in my uh, newsletter which is my post zine project um, but I mean it's wild like the ways that the time and energy that you seem to take with ev- like dealing with everybody's kind of nuanced uh, selves yeah is is remarkable to me thank you um, but I also think it happened at this moment where like I feel like they may be like um, Danny Ortberg that used to do The Toast mm-hmm. uh, has an advice podcast, Dear Prudence. Yeah. And then um, Nicole Georges, who does the, she, she writes comics and she does this podcast, Sagittarian Matters, that I really like, where she invites, mm-hmm. it, it answers advice questions, but also had like, a sh- had her advice column running somewhere for a minute. Um, yeah. And I feel like there was this moment of like, in, what seemed in my life at least of this like groundswell of gay advice that I was really just stoked on. Yeah. It felt good. And it, and I feel like, um, your zine felt like that. It was all, all of it, except your zines, all of it was strictly online content and it felt really nice to be like, to get a thing in the mail. Yeah. It was like, and, and just reading it. I don't know. It feels really good. It feels, do you feel, are you, are you as proud as I think you should be? No, I, I'm a, it makes me nervous too because I also assemble them all mm-hmm. and I have my family helping me. Sure. Because um, also that was the other concern was I didn't have room in my apartment for the project so I had to move all of the zines back to Appleton because yeah. I need a car and a giant table. Yeah. Um, there's something that makes me feel very self-conscious about like seeing them and like the volume of them go out in the mail. Whereas if I write something for Autostraddle, I know it's like reaching people, but I'm not seeing. You don't have to watch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the first time I paid rent off zine sales, my rent was four hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like I just had to make more than four hundred dollars in a month. But like, and I had never, I never stopped working. No matter, I was getting donations through the Slice Harvester website. This was, I guess, before Instagram had really popped off. Yeah. Or else I think it would have just ended up predominantly on Instagram. But. Um, I was getting donations through the Slice Harvester site, and I was—I um, uh, started publishing the zines, and it was—I barely even had done mail order. I just was like consigning them to stores only in New York City, only New York, yeah. and and it was cool because I could go to cooking stores, like I didn't just have yeah. to go to bookstores and like weirdo punks shops, but I was like. I was getting them on consignment everywhere and I just like, I ran through, I mean, I think I've printed between all seven issues, I maybe 20,000 copies of wow, all those incredible. zines over the course of like seven or eight years. And they're out of print now because I chose to make them. Like I don't, yeah. I'm sick of it. Yeah. At the end, I started paying someone else. To, like I was scamming all the copies. So my overhead was really low, but it was a lot of work because I would like have to fold and staple mm-hmm. everything. And, even though I was stealing the copies and then I would and then I started paying to get them copied and collated and stapled and folded and I would just like go pick up the boxes and I was making less money but I was just like yeah. so much less work but 
I don't know. I'm rambling. I'm sorry. No, I didn't not at all. I no, I highly relate to this folding and stapling. Yeah. Commiserating. But the point is, the feeling when I finally, for the first time in my life, paid a month of rent off zines was euphoric. It felt so unbelievable that like this physical labor I had done and and mental sort of intellectual, physical and intellectual yeah. labor that I had done to make this thing was literally paying off. Um, Right, and I think also like in capitalism, when you are really taught that money is a way that your work is valued, yeah. Even if you're like unsubscribed to that, there is something about something this work really supports good. me. It's important. Other people see value in it. Yeah, yeah. It's like a very tangible way of feeling appreciated. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, do you? You mentioned in the elevator that you're signing a book contract I am can, tomorrow we, do you want to talk about this yeah by the time this comes out your contract will be signed so yes um, a lot can happen in New York in 24 hours that's true yeah um, how did that come about so it actually came about through Kelsey Roten who is another Instagram friend who I only met for the first time in person this week oh cool and it was incredible um, so she's a comic book artist and she had been contacted by Chronicle Books which does a lot of like cookbooks and they wanted her to do like a planner for queer women or something like that okay and she was like well I'm not like wild about that idea but I would love to like turn this zine into we've been like referring to it as like a hi-fi version of the zine because it's gonna be all new letters right and then it'll be half comics like done by Kelsey Kelsey will draw comics of the advice of like situations sure yeah so every chapter so it's like divided into chapters and we knew we didn't want it to be about like coming out right um or like specific questions about identity because that can feel like there just are resources for that yeah there's a lot yeah so we were like well it'd be cool to just like assume that everyone reading is queer and then it's just about like messy relationships and it's not so much about the kind of like building blocks yeah let's skip the one-on-one stuff like yeah people have access to that information and like the people that need that will get it elsewhere. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And we were like, yeah, so we just wanted to make a relationship about dating um, or a book about dating as like a messy thing. And then it has, um, we're still finding people, it has like eight guest contributors because we're both like white cis women. So yeah. we were like, it would be really cool to decenter ourselves. Sure. In some ways. Do you have all the guest contributors picked out? We don't have any of them picked out yet. Oh, shit. Yeah, so I think the deal was like, um, we didn't have an agent mm-hmm. when we were first talking with Chronicle. Did they make you get an agent? They didn't make us get an agent. We found an agent because there's just so much that we didn't feel like we, we knew. Mm-hmm. Um, but we knew that the zines had this like incredible following, right? right? Like we always knew that and we knew that there was like proven interest in the project. So we were kind of like, oh, we should like maybe have somebody in our corner. Who represents us? But basically, one thing that we learned from our agent um, is that like you pay the guest contributors out of like your own advance, mm-hmm. and you have to draft as like the author. You have to draft like your own forms. Yeah. For them, so we were just like figuring all that stuff out, and we haven't reached out to guest contributors yet. Yeah, it's tough. Um, yeah, that stuff was really hard. I ended up because I had I hired a friend of mine to illustrate uh-huh. my book, and I was like, "What are you?" I was asking Simon and Schuster a multinational corporation or like a, I, right. are they multinational I don't know what that no, means they're like, actually they're like one of the big five right yeah and they are definitely like I did some 
I was on such a cloud when I was like offered the book contract. It was like kind of a whirlwind. I had just gotten sober, mm-hmm. um, and I went in and I signed this thing. And then I was, or like, I had a first meeting with them, and they were like, "You need an agent." And then I went and got an agent, and then I signed the contract. And then I was like, "Who did I just sign a contract with?" And was trying to like mm-hmm. go on Wingnut websites to find out if they like fund. Halliburton or anything you know what I mean if I'm right, like right, if any yeah. of my money was coming from like um, like the, craft the defense contract yeah, or, something, or the defense yeah. industry I, sh- I, I should say or like the military industrial complex um, and uh, God I'm so rambling I forgot what I'm talking about completely no I think what you're like speaking to is it's really hard because you're so excited about opportunities yeah right it's really hard not to say yes to everything. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Especially a thing that's that big. Where yeah, I was like, my exactly. mom's going to be so proud. This validates all the dumb decisions I ever made because they all led up to this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels so uh, overwhelming. It's like every celebrity, like sports star, like whatever kind of celebrity you are, they all like get to a certain point and they want like a physical book. Like there's something really magical about like a book yeah. deal, right? But then it is, it's like, that's, it's like so long and it's such specialized knowledge and there's mm-hmm. like United States rights but then international rights. Um, we did not feel like we could have done it ourselves at all. Even like, though we both come from like DIY backgrounds. Oh, hell no. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't even think about, I thought about the book as a completely different project from zines that I had done where it was, I was mm-hmm. like, this is a different thing. Like, mm-hmm. this is a different zone. It requires different kind of work, and it is going to look different, um, and they're going to pay me a lot more. Right. And, I, and and the work versus money is so much better than if I were to try to make that equivalent amount of money just, like, folding and stapling zines in my apartment, which was... A book is a zine that someone else folds and staples. Yeah, kind yeah. of. But wait, so you said that you signed the contract, and then you had... Oh, I remember. I was... I wasn't having doubts. I was just like, who are these rich people? Yeah. And why won't they, why do I have to pay for my friend to yeah. illustrate? I was so bummed. Uh, and my agent was kind of just like, yeah, that's just how it goes. Yeah. And there's so much too that the answer is like, that's how it goes. This is a handshake business. Yeah. Um, our agent talks a lot about like publishers as having kind of like feelings. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known that without his, his help. Yeah. I mean, the way they describe, because... When I went in for my meeting, the publisher was like, we want to give you this book. You just need to get an agent. And I was like, but if you already want to give me the contract, what do I need the agent for? And they were like, well, here's the thing. The agent doesn't just negotiate the contract. The agent is also like a third party that um, is along for the editing process. Mm -hmm. So if there's no agent and you and your editor get in a fight, which my editor and I got in quite a few little tiffs about word choices and shit, that can just turn into like a feedback loop of like, right. this is never gonna end, no one's gonna budge. If there's an agent on, as like a third node in that conversation, the agent can either advocate on your behalf if they agree with you, or they can gently convince you that the editor might be right if they don't. And um, it just makes the whole the communi- communication dynamic work so much better. Yeah. Um, and that seemed like a sensible thing. Like it was like, oh, the publisher feels this type of way and like I can't, this monolith is actually like a thing that I have to negotiate with. Right, um, right. 
it's like a collaboration, right? But then your name is on it, yeah, which is really hard to think of, especially when you've had like total artistic control over Slice Harvester. Dude, I know. Walking away from that was, I I was really into it. Yeah. I really liked being like, this is, this is not in, this is someone else's thing, kinda, and I'm just along for the ride. Hmm. You um, mean the blog, Slice Harvester, or the the book felt like I was. Oh. Stepping, I was like, oh no, this is just like a thing I'm doing for somebody else. Oh, even though okay, it's about okay. me, even though it's going to be attached to my name forever, I was like, this is like just something I'm doing for some rich people and for my parents or whatever, mm-hmm. um, who are also just some rich people. I mean, they're lovely, but yeah. not trying to make a distinction between my parents and the wealthy. They are one and the same. Um, that's so fucking thrilling. And then you're going to Gainesville after this to go to a comics school? Yeah, I'm going to the sequential arts workshop which is run by like Tom Hart, who's an incredible graphic novelist. Yeah. Um, when I was in getting my MFA, I took a lot of classes with Linda Berry. Oh, shit. Yeah, so that totally changed my life. I didn't draw at all before Linda's class. Yeah. But it's just a class about like how to be bad at something and how to fail and how to have fun. Oh my God, I yeah. want to take if that you, class. You could definitely take a class with her. She teaches, she's a, she does things all over the country all the time, but yeah. it'll like change your life. I need my life to be changed. If you honestly just go by um, Linda Berry's book syllabus and you like do it, like you follow the instructions oh, yeah. exactly, like that will change your life. I have that book. I haven't. Rebecca has a copy of it. I haven't done it. She's incredible. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. So she um, and I were talking a couple months ago because I graduated in May 2018. So, yeah, like, we never talked. Where did you go for your MFA? Also UW Madison. That. Okay, yeah. so you stayed in Madison. Great. Yes. So I signed on for more Madison time. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? Linda, Linda Barry. Barry Comic School. Oh, she was just like, you just need structure. She was like, you should think about this program with Tom Hart in Gainesville. And I don't feel like particularly attached to like any geographic place right now. That's good. Yeah. This past year I was living in Chicago, Yeah. which was nice, but I wasn't really doing a lot outside yeah. of the scene. Uh, of Chicago stuff, you mean? Yeah. Like I wasn't, I wasn't leaving my apartment a lot, but I also wasn't writing very much. Mm. So I, I want to push myself more this upcoming year. Yeah. I feel like some cities are, and I don't think Chicago is one of them like uh, in a universal way, but I feel like some cities are just like not writing cities. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like I moved to Austin, Texas. And when I was moving there, my friend Aaron Comicbus, who's like a zine guy, he's oh. been doing zines. I think his first zine came out the year I was born. Wow. Um, and we've been... Um, He's one of my closest friends in New York, and it's like someone who I really appreciate his presence in my life. But he was like, but sometimes your friends who are like a generation or two older than you, uh, maybe you don't take their advice so seriously because right. you're kind of like, whatever. Yeah, old man. Dad, yeah. Yeah. Um, but he was like, and I had forgotten completely that he said it, but he was like, Austin is a bad city for writing. Oh, okay. Because it's too fun. I don't know I don't what, know. I don't remember what his rationale was, but he was just like, Austin's bad for writing. He had spent some time there, and I mean, it's not a very, it's not fun now. I think it probably used to be fun. It's like, there's a lot of great stuff there, great groceries, some very fun Mm -hmm. people in the punk scene. Um, It is like a tech gentrification hell zone. Yeah. Um, But um, you don't even think, you you never think of Austin as like a robust literary culture. At least I don't. I can't think of like a single, off the off the top of my head, like 
poet or a writer that is like that reps Austin hard. No, but I love those movies that are just kind of like tangential. Yeah, that, you know what I'm um, talking about. And they yeah, all like take place in Austin. Slacker. Slack. Yeah. That that dude. Um, That's the, like my only Austin fan reference. The uh, the the dazed and confused guy. It's yeah. the same person. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there's weird. It's interesting. I think I feel like I've written differently in different places, and like different, even different rooms. Like I had an office in my sister's apartment uh-huh. when I lived in Williamsburg, because I didn't really, I couldn't write in my apartment. And she had moved in with her now husband, and they had a roommate that moved out, and they just had this empty room they were doing nothing with. So they gave me a key, and I would go when they were at work and like sit at a desk, a desk that I took with me and still uh-huh. have now in Pittsburgh. Um, I wrote most of my book at that desk in Emma and Danny's apartment. And then um, it's funny how like different rooms and different spaces. And I tried to write a lot of it at the New York Public Library because um, that's where Alfred Kazin wrote the book New York Jew. And I really wanted to just like, I really wanted to do an interview and say, I wrote my book at the New York Public Library because Alfred Kazin wrote New York Jew there. But then like, I couldn't ever get work done because there's too many people in the room. Yeah, it's really chaotic there. Yeah. Yeah. but yeah, that's so exciting that you're like going, that it's so exciting A, that you were like, Chicago is not working for me, I'm out. And you realized that and didn't try to stick it out. No, it was, it was the vortex broke my apartment. What do you mean? Like it froze all the pipes and I lived above a cell phone store. So every time I turned on my shower, it would just go straight into this Boost Mobile store. It was just like awful and it was like just a terrible landlord situation. Yeah. So I was just like, I'm no longer paying rent. Like, I will get my full security deposit back to them. Um, and I think that they respected me for saying that because I did get the security deposit back. But I just put all of my stuff in a storage unit and went oh, back shit. to Wisconsin. But it yeah. was like, I was like realizing, I was like, this is just like... This is not... Yeah. This is like not a great place for me to be right now. Uh-uh. Yeah. Too cold. Too I cold. I love a Chicago hot dog, though. Yeah, that's true. They've got fantastic. that going for it. Um, but yeah, Gainesville is very exciting. I don't know. I feel like Thank we've you. talked for like an hour. Mm-hmm. It seems like a nice conversation. Do you have anything that you want to add to a podcast that barely anyone listens to? <laughs> um, no, I'm so excited to be here. I was really nervous because um, I, I think that I like pizza, but then I'll talk to my friends from New York and New Jersey, and they'll be like, that pizza sucks, right? So I think... I have bad taste in pizza. What I'm trying to say is I was nervous you were going to ask me some pizza questions because oh. I am a lady who enjoys like a fast food pizza. I, you know, I typically don't ever talk about pizza okay. to my guests, but now, <laughs> I want, now I'm curious. Uh huh. What is your fast food pizza preferences? I really like the pan pizza at Domino's. Okay. And I enjoy any kind of like crispy Domino's, but I also like like the $5 like Little Caesars just like garbage like hot and ready is that what it's called hot and ready and I don't know if you've been to a Little Caesars recently but you can order online and then you get a code that you like punch into a little locker like an automat yeah like an automat and your pizza is in there wow I love that so there's no interaction yeah minimize interaction <laughs> that um, Little Caesars is I think my favorite of the big chains uh-huh. We call them the big three as like national chains. It's Domino's, Pizza Hut, Little Caesars. Okay. Because there's other more reg- like Noble Romans they have in. I've never heard about it. Um, yeah. In 
parts of the heartland. There's like a lot of them in Ohio and um, and Indiana. Allegedly, their Sicilian is very good. Okay. Um, but and there's like um, what's the one in the south? Cece's. Cece's. Yeah. With the buffet, Cece's is nasty. Cece's pizza buffet. So Any nasty. pizza buffet. Yeah. Have you ever been to like a pizza ranch? No, I've never even heard of a pizza ranch, but I like that. What I picture when I hear the word uh-huh. pizza ranch together is like <laughs> um, like a wood post, like Lincoln uh-huh. log fence, but it's made of chewed off crusts. Uh-huh. And then there's like a cigarro <laughs> cactus that's made out of like stacked pepperonis or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like instead of dirt on the ground, it's like a mixture of Parmesan and red pepper and black pepper. Mm. I mean, it, it is a cowboy themed pizza buffet. Okay. That is not good. No. Yeah. What part of the country do they have Pizza Ranch? I know Wisconsin for sure. Okay. But the weird thing about where I'm from, Wisconsin, northeastern Wisconsin, which is like close to Green Bay and the Green Bay Packers, is that it's like the test site for a lot of um, new fast food items, but also like new restaurant chains. Why do you think that, is it like just like some sort of crucible where it's like a distilled version of all of America? What do you think is going on there? I don't know. I think basically that they were like, this is a demographic that we can like really test things out as because it's like Midwestern, but it's not like economically depressed at all. Oh. Right. Um, so I don't know. And maybe people are just more open Yeah. to things, but yeah, you can definitely find like McDonald's donut sticks because McDonald's was like, maybe we could have donut sticks, but we don't want to invest in it until we know that like the people of right. Northeastern Wisconsin are into it. <laughs> What's a donut stick? Is that like a churro? It is a churro, yeah. It's just a white person called it a donut stick? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And it looks, it doesn't have that churro shape. Yeah, the churro is like an asterisk. Yeah. Where it's like kind of got This uh, is like limbs. like a like a breadstick. Yeah, okay. Breadstick <laughs> covered in cinnamon and sugar. Mm-hmm. Sounds delicious. Yeah, Abby. Got a problem. Mr. Tuna, helper, and ta-da! Dear Abby, got a problem. Um, yeah, that's it. That's the end of the episode. This uh, song right now, it's not very good. It's called Dear Abby. It's by Dead Kennedys. Uh, kind of like being into magic. If you're still into Dead Kennedys in your 30s, something I don't trust about you. Um, but, you know, yell at me about that if you want, but I'm right. Um, thank you also to La Cara Oculta for writing the theme song. Thank you to Maddie Court for being a great guest and a great friend and for giving great advice uh, and making great zines. There'll be links to everything I mentioned in the episode description. If you've listened this far, just give me a five-star review wherever you do that. Write a nice thing about me. I need the affirmation. And uh, that's it. No cops, no creeps, no borders. Fuck ice, free Palestine. Harvest, they're out.